Welcome to this week's sermon from Amblecote Community Church. Thank you, Phil, and good morning. As we continue to work our way through the book of Genesis, the next major milestone that we come to is, of course, the story of Noah and the Great Flood. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, then I'd invite you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 6 and verses 5 to 7, where we will read together those harrowing words of the Lord's judgment spoken against the depravity of mankind. Genesis chapter 6, verses 5 to 7. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. Harrowing and sobering words indeed. I recall an occasion as a teenager when a well-meaning youth leader had filled my head with the romantic idea that God would always bless our efforts to share the gospel so long as it was done with sufficient passion and faith. Now, anyone who has had any degree of experience with evangelism will immediately know what a naive and foolish idea that is. But it was armed with that false assurance that I went into my school one Monday morning, confident and determined to share my faith. What I learned that day about my friends was that below the surface of their friendly demeanor lay a harsh and even militant resistance to Christianity. And they certainly didn't hold back in telling me so. I particularly remember that they accused Christians of hypocrisy on the basis that we laud the name of Jesus. We praise him for his love, his peace, his grace, and his mercy. All of these things which are unfolded to us in the pages of the New Testament, all while turning, according to my accusers, a blind eye to the Old Testament, where the same God that Jesus claimed to be can often be found not characterized by love and patience, but with anger and with a violent disposition. So as we approach the story of Noah and the flood this morning, we need to acknowledge that we are approaching a section of scripture that is well known for these very things. God's anger against sin and his violent plan to destroy creation with a flood are plainly on display. 
these things are often difficult to wrestle with, but it's incredibly important that we make the effort to engage with them. However, in terms of what we are doing on these Sunday mornings, looking at the broad strokes of the book of Genesis, it didn't seem right to me to make these things the focus of our sermon this morning. You see, whilst these things certainly are important, there's also something else at work here. Something that is equally important, yet is often overlooked when we talk about the story of Noah and the flood. And it's simply that behind the scenes, these passages do a lot of work to establish the nature of God's faithfulness to mankind. Now, both of these themes are incredibly important, and if I wanted to cover both of them and do it well, I think we would be talking about 60 minutes. And believe me, I'd be as likely as the rest of you to fall asleep after listening to myself for 60 minutes. So for your sake and mine, we are not doing that this morning. But I hope that you can accept that we are making a bit of a compromise this morning. There's a lot more to this passage than what I'm about to preach, but for the purposes of this morning, we are going to focus on the theme of God's faithfulness to mankind. And as we do that, we are going to see three things. First of all, we are going to see how the passage demonstrates God's absolute commitment to his promises. We're going to spend the majority of our time doing that. And then we're also going to see how an awareness of God's faithfulness impacts on the lives that we live today. And then finally, we will see how it provides assurance of the life that is to come. So we said that this theme of God's faithfulness is rarely talked about in conjunction with the story of Noah. In fact, I had been a Christian for about 15 years before I even realized that this passage possessed such a dimension. And it's a curious thing to think about these things because we begin with those verses that we read earlier where it appears that God is just about ready to abandon mankind along with the rest of creation. So you might rightly be wondering, how on earth are we going to get from there to the conclusion that these passages teach us about God's faithfulness? Well, let me enlighten you that the key to understanding all of this is to look at it through the lens of God's covenant with man. Now, we'll develop the theme of God's covenant more fully throughout our series in Genesis. But for now, all that we need to think about when we talk about God's covenant are the promises that God made to mankind through Adam and Eve back in Genesis 3. If you were here last week, you will have received Tim's teaching on the fall of mankind in Genesis 3. To recap, God had created man and woman and put them in a paradise where they could glorify God and enjoy him forever. But they chose to disobey God and God cursed them. 
But alongside the curse, God also made a promise that he would bless humanity again and that he would do that through their future offspring. So this promise to curse and to bless together compose what we call the Adamic covenant, that is to say the covenant which God made with Adam. But of course, these are promises that extend to all mankind. In some ways, it's a bit of a grim covenant because those curses heavily outnumber the blessings. But the the little grain of hope that is contained in it is a future hope that will be delivered through man's lineage. Now, we need to realize when we read Genesis that lineage is a very important theme. And when we read Genesis with that in mind, it transforms the way that we read some of these stories. Suddenly, all these records about fathers and their sons, think about Abraham and Isaac, Isaac and Jacob, Jacob and Joseph and so on. Suddenly, these aren't just stories that are being recorded for the sake of history, but actually, since they speak about man's lineage, they are communicating volumes to us about God and the way that he keeps his covenant. So we learn in Genesis 3 that lineage is an important theme. Genesis 4 and 5 then deal with the theme of man's lineage. And so when we arrive in Genesis 6, we are naturally asking the question, what are we going to learn now about man's lineage? And the answer is in those verses that we read earlier. I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land. Mankind has descended into a state of such absolute corruption that the Bible presents God now as being ready to wipe them off the face of the earth entirely. So we ask our question, What is the condition of man's lineage? Well, it's done, isn't it? If God carries out exactly what he is describing here, then mankind is finished. But there's just one problem with that. God has tied his covenant to man's lineage. He has promised to bless all humanity and he said that he will do that by means of a future offspring. And until Jesus would come many years later and fulfill that promise, God's ability to keep his covenant lives and dies with the fate of mankind. These things are inseparably linked. So as we see the imagery in this passage of God contemplating, as it were, this act of purging the earth from man's corruption, it appears to us as the reader that the whole covenant and God's integrity with it now hangs in the balance. Could it be that God would actually break His promise. To us, that might sound ridiculous, but you have to remember that the book of Genesis 
um, was written to the Israelites to communicate who God is, and it makes that communication against the backdrop of Israel's familiarity with whatever gods were being worshipped by the civilizations around them. Gods with a flawed sense of integrity. Gods whose knowledge and foresight were limited. Gods whose care for humanity was fleeting at best. And against that backdrop, the idea that God's anger would burn so hot as to cause him to forget about all of the things that he had promised certainly wouldn't have seemed far-fetched. The threat would have felt very real. It might be lost on us to some degree, but to the original reader, there was great tension in this passage. But now we are about to learn something about who God is and why he is different to all of those other gods. What you need to understand about God is that he is truth. He's not just truthful, but he actually is truth. And that means that it is altogether impossible for him to lie. In fact, he cannot even come so close to a lie as to overpromise on what he is able to deliver. If he did, then he would be something less than absolute truth and therefore wouldn't be God at all. So every thought that God communicates is pure, unbridled truth. And since he has communicated these covenant promises to us, we can have full confidence that they will come to pass. So even when we have a narrative such as Genesis 6 before us that portrays the covenant as though it were in a state of jeopardy, as though the fate of the covenant and God's integrity with it is balancing on a razor's edge, we can be sure that that is never truly the case. It is not possible for God to break his promises because he is truth. Furthermore, this decline of mankind into depravity came as no surprise to God. This wasn't some frustration of his plans and purposes. This isn't a hot-headed reaction from God, but rather it is a premeditated event ordained to happen by God from before the foundation of the world. Yet, the narrative is relayed to us in such a way that the tension is left in. Why not just say that this is God's plan? Why not just say that everything is under control? What is the passage trying to communicate to us by telling the story in such a way that it flirts with the idea of God breaking his promise? It is trying to show us the sheer level of God's commitment to his own words and promises. God said that he would bless humanity. And this passage goes a long way to showing 
that there is nothing that can take the truth out of God's words. Even when we have this extreme description of humanity where we not only took God's image and dragged it through the mud, but we paraded our depravity right under his nose. We spat in his face. We twisted the knife. We rubbed salt in the wound. But even in doing all of that, we could never take God so deep into his anger as to cause him to forget what he had promised to do. This passage demonstrates to us this morning that God's covenant fidelity stands firm even under the most extreme conditions. He is absolutely committed to what he has promised. Hence, we come at last to verse 8. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So we are introduced to this character, Noah. And we are told in verse 9 that he is a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and that he walked with God. This would be the reason why God would save him and his family, and in so doing, prove that he is faithful to his covenant promises. So in a narrative sense, we have this man, Noah, who is a righteous man, and he is all that is standing between God and total destruction of creation. But behind the narrative, we know that it is not Noah who reaches out with his righteousness and stays God's hand, so to speak. But rather, it is God's hand who puts Noah on the earth in the first place and gives him the gift of faith for the very purpose of being this tiny little intrusion of righteousness in what would otherwise be a perfectly corrupt world. God, in his perfect knowledge and foresight, had given himself a reason to remember mercy by placing Noah on the earth. So God calls Noah to this unusual task to build an ark, a vessel of salvation for him and his family. And God explains to him that all but these eight people are fated for destruction. But for this little remnant of humanity, God tells them in verse 18 that he will establish his covenant with them. Do you see that God's plan to bless humanity is not abandoned, but it is very much alive. The hope lives on through Noah, even as God pours out his judgment against sin. That's the main thing that we want to communicate this morning is the sheer depth of God's commitment to his promises. As we carry on through the passage, we'll reach our, our applications in a moment, but we know how the story progresses from here, don't we? We see throughout chapter 7, um, the, the family goes into the ark and the waters start to rise. We are told that the rains continue for 40 days until all of the land is covered. 
Even the peaks of mountains are now below sea level, but the ark and the ark alone is prevailing on the surface of the water. So the Bible is clear that God's plan has been effective in achieving its purpose. We read in chapter 7, verses 22 to 23, that everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life, he blotted out. He blotted out everything that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. And then we are told in verse 24 that they were in the ark for 150 more days while the waters prevailed on the earth. And we know that the, the ark comes to rest on the mountain and that they're in the ark for a bit longer before they come out. Some uh, people would estimate that it's just over a year that they spend in this ark. In a few months' time, my family and I are going on a ferry from Liverpool to Belfast. The crossing will take about 10 hours and I am not looking forward to the prospect of it. 10 hours is bad enough, but when you compare it to all the days that Noah and his family spent cooped up in the ark, it pales in comparison. It must have taken its toll on them. I suspect there would have been moments where they began to wonder whether God had forgotten about them. Yes, God had given his word that he would preserve them. And yes, we've demonstrated this morning that God is absolutely committed to that covenant. But that doesn't necessarily mean that Noah and his family knew it as well as you and I do. And if they did, who's to say that after all those long days of isolation, that they still believed it with full conviction? So here's our first application. I wonder if you ever ask yourself the same question. Has God forgotten us? 2,000 years after Christ, and we are still waiting for his return. Meanwhile, the world around us has, for the most part, moved on. It's not waiting for Christ. It has its own agenda and priorities. But unlike Noah, who would have had a very limited knowledge of the full history of God's faithfulness to mankind, we have written down for us in the books of the Old Testament and the New countless testimonies to God's faithfulness. It's important that we understand this morning that even from the early chapters of the first book of Scripture, God makes it a priority to communicate to us his faithfulness to his word. As we live our lives today, we need not do so with fear that God has abandoned us, but rather we can look to his word and rest in the faithfulness of our great God. And of course, we read in the passage that God does remember Noah 
and his family. Throughout chapter 8, we read about how the floodwaters abate and they eventually come out of the ark and God reestablishes his covenant with Noah. But he adds to it now the promise that he will never again send such a flood to destroy all life. A promise which God has kept all these years as a further testimony to his faithfulness. But as we draw towards the end of this narrative of Noah, we arrive at a most curious event in chapter 9. And it's from here that we take our second application. Noah has planted a vineyard in the new world. And one evening he partakes of a little too much wine. Basically, reading from the Hebrew here, he gets absolutely bladdered. And he lies down in his tent, but he forgets to cover himself up. And one of his sons, Ham, walks into the tent, sees his father in this right old state, and he goes immediately to tell his brothers. When Shem and Japheth arrive, they do what Ham should have done in the first place. They walk into the tent backwards out of respect for their father and they cover up his nakedness. What on earth is this bizarre story doing here and how does it connect to God's faithfulness? What we are seeing here, I believe, is a foreshadowing of nothing less than the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, Noah is a picture of you and me. He has fallen into sin and the evidence of his guilt and shame is on display. Our exact situations might be different to Noah's, but in a general sense, we are all broken and sinful people. And we feel exposed because all of our flaws and imperfections, all of the evidence of our sinful nature are on display for everyone to see. What we desperately need is for someone to come and cover us up. Ham is a picture of the world. He comes along and instead of being sensitive to his father's need, he exploits it. He goes to tell his brothers so that they can come and laugh with him at their father. The world thrives on the brokenness of others. The guilty person feeling embarrassed and exposed wants nothing more than a place where they can run to to hide their nakedness and shame. But as we run around looking for shelter, the world points at us. The world mocks us. And the world calls attention to our shame and drives us deeper into our feelings of guilt. Shem and Japheth then, they are pictures of Jesus. They go with purpose to the place where their father has fallen. 
They've made it their business to cover up his shame so that no one else can find him there and make a spectacle of him. Jesus is the one who meets fallen sinners where they are and offers them a covering for all of their guilt and their shame. So this little epilogue about Noah isn't just a random story, but rather it serves to connect the testimony of God's faithfulness in the past to the future work of Jesus on the cross. And it demonstrates the fact that Jesus is always the focal point of everything that God promises. It all points to Jesus. And the assurance that we have this morning that God is faithful is also an assurance that Christ is a powerful saviour. He is able to rescue us from the pit and he is able to bring fallen sinners not only back to their feet but all the way home into glory where they can enjoy his blessing and his presence forevermore. Let us pray together. Father, we thank you that you are the God of truth. We thank you that all of your ways and your words are true and that we can rest in your promises. We thank you for all that you have promised to us and we thank you that you have demonstrated through your word that you are absolutely committed to seeing them through. As we live our lives this day and all the days to come, help us to read your word and experience again the testimonies to your faithfulness. May they fill us with assurance that you will never abandon us, nor will you forget the reward that you have promised to the faithful. In your name we pray. Amen. listening to this podcast from Amblecote Community Church. For more information about who we are, what we believe and how you can get involved, check out our website 